Our scripture passage this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, as we read verses 13 through 17. Hear now the word of God. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we confess our absolute dependence upon you today. We depend upon you. We depend upon your Son And we depend upon the spirit which proceeds from you and your son. And so would you provide for our hearts this morning? Give us what we need that your word would fall upon us as onto good soil. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. I was, I'm weird in lots of ways, but... But one of the ways that I, I'm a little strange was that a lot of my, the guys that I went to seminary with, they went to college and then they went straight to seminary and there was no gap in between. And I graduated from college an exhausted, weary man who knew that I could not go into seminary right away. And so I took five years. And during that five-year stretch before I went to seminary, I was still anticipating becoming a pastor. I was still anticipating going to seminary. What I would do was I befriended as many pastors as I could, and I spent time with them, and I would ask them about their screw-ups, their mistakes. Uh, I wanted to learn lessons from, from people, and so I just asked for all sorts of advice. And um, I remember at one pastor, I, I, asked, I asked, what piece of advice would you have for me? And on the one hand, This answer is kind of sad. On the other hand, it was helpful. He said, never ask what people say about you behind your back. (laughs) And, uh, And he explained that it was just too hard to go through ministry worrying about what people think of you on a weekly basis. Because if you're asking that question, you know, you're sort of putting your finger in the air, trying to feel the temperature. And what are you doing? Instead of proclaiming the word of God each week, you start asking the question, what does everybody want to hear this week? And when you start doing that, you start becoming obsessed with pleasing people in the congregation. And your focus becomes on yourself and it becomes on them. And you take your eyes off of God, whom you're supposed to be serving. And so I have tried my best to follow that. My, my philosophy is, you know, if someone wants to complain, they should complain to me. Otherwise, I don't want to hear about it. Um, and I try, Lord willing, not to ask the question, what do people say about me? I think I'm too scared to know the answer. Um, but I'm even more scared of what asking the question does to my own heart. Well, see, Jesus, though, he is Jesus. He's, he's in a class of his own. Um, and he does what many of us in the ministry fear. 
And so he asks Peter, <laughs> what are people saying about me? He would like to know the answer to that question. Um, he's much braver than me and he can handle the answer. And so he says, who do they say that I am? And the answers start rolling in. You, you see in verse 14, he asks the group a question and he gets a group answer. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So we've got at least four answers here. Um, a bunch of mistaken answers, right? Some of them are closer to the mark than others. But what you find is one thing in common. All of them think Jesus is just another of the prophets, right? Because every answer here is a prophet answer. Elijah's a prophet. John the Baptist is a prophet. Jeremiah is a prophet. And then there's that blanket phrase or one of the prophets, right? Whatever you are, Jesus, the people think you're a prophet. And um, all of these men were prophets, right? And the idea of the crowds, apparently what's getting across to the crowds is Jesus is one of them. The prophets are still ministering today. Look at Jesus. And so Jesus learns this variety of answers that are out there about him, but he knows those aren't the right answers. He knows that those aren't the truth. What do the people closest to him say? Now, again, I, I will just sort of go back to my approach to what other people say about you. I, I care very little what a stranger who doesn't know me thinks, someone far away, what they think, right? Right. But it is far more important to me what someone who has spent time with me, someone who sees me up close, maybe my own family, maybe those who are intimately connected with me somehow, you care far more what they think, right? Those are the opinions that really matter. And so Jesus asks this much more significant question, but who do you say that I am? So now we're going to listen to the answer of the disciples. We're going to spend time on their answer. But then I want us to, to specifically, between this week and next week, dwell on the response Jesus gives to their answer. So part of Jesus' answer we're going to look at today, and you will notice that if you've got your Bibles open, that there's more that Jesus says after Peter's answer and after his response to Peter. But as I contemplated trying to cram it in, uh, to this week, I decided that that would be a, a fool's errand. And so instead, we're just going to take the last part of Jesus's answer, and we're going to look more closely at that next week. And so for this week, I want us to see how Jesus answers two questions. First, the question of Christ, and then, this, and then second, the question of revelation. Who is Jesus, and how do the disciples come to know who he is? So let's just, very simple, I think, pretty straightforward. The first question, the question of Christ, who is he? Who is Jesus? So, so after inquiring about what other people think, Jesus says to the disciples, the question, who do you say that I am? And before we look at Peter's answer, just think about what is happening right here. What we have in front of us is the highlight of the book so far. What we have right now, you could almost call the climax of the book because the whole book has been the miracles of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the healings of Jesus. And all of them are not just happening because, well, we need a book to read. We need a lot of things going on. We need to just know the conglomeration of things that Jesus did in his ministry. All of it is meant to aim at this one specific question. Who is this man? 
And we don't have to guess too hard. Think about this. Matthew has been dropping the breadcrumbs for us through the entire book. Matthew has been, has been leading us. He's been showing us where he's going. Think of what Matthew constantly does throughout this book. Um, Jesus does or teaches something. And then what does Matthew do? Matthew immediately goes, this was to fulfill the scripture that says. This was to fulfill the scripture that says. It, it happens dozens of times throughout this book. Matthew is constantly, in the first half of this book so far, letting us know that Jesus is a fulfillment of the scriptures. Whoever Jesus is, he's a fulfillment of the scriptures. The, the prophets were not fulfillments of the scriptures. The, the, ultimately, the scriptures were not leading us to a prophet because the purpose is not to get us to a prophet. Notice that Jesus asks what the disciples think of him. See, this is more significant. He wants to know what do they think of his identity. He doesn't just ask what people say about his teachings. He doesn't say, what do people say about my teachings? He doesn't say, what do people say about my miracles? What he says is, who do they say that I am? You see how different that is. Because the teachings and the healings, all of those things are meant to lead to the person. The question is central to Jesus because who he is is central. You, know, you and I, from time to time, may wonder, I, I think, I wonder what people think about me, right? We might even ask others what they think uh, uh, of us just because we're curious, right? Maybe it's because of vanity, right? Whatever our reasons are, we might ask what other people think of us, but that's not what this is. Jesus is not having his curiosity satisfied. He is asking this question because it is the unavoidable center of all of his life and ministry and everything that he has been doing. What has his life been preaching so far? What is the sermon that Jesus' life has been preaching and he's asking the disciples to tell him? The success of Jesus' whole life in ministry hangs on the question of who is he? See, Jesus is not just a great teacher who points us to great truths. That's what other religious leaders in history are and were, right? They were somebody who at least aspired to be someone who leads you to the truth. But Jesus is different. He's not somebody who leads you to the truth. He is the great truth. This is one of the things, in fact, this is perhaps the thing that most profoundly and centrally distinguishes Jesus from leaders of other world religions. Jesus does not just give instruction. He gives himself. And so because of that, the question of his identity is more than a historical question. It is not just for fun. It is not just for curiosity. So yes, Jesus is very fixated on people coming to him personally. Understanding personally who he is. Who do you say that I am? And so Peter answers and as so often happens, he answers for all of the disciples. He opens his mouth first, but he speaks for them all. And the disciples give a different answer than the one that the crowd gives. Thankfully, Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Right? The crowds think you're a prophet. I say differently. I say you are the Christ. Now, maybe, especially if you haven't grown up in the church, especially if you haven't read the New Testament before, especially if you're new to the Bible, or maybe you're a Christian, but you, you hear a word like the Christ and it just sounds like a religious phrase. You haven't actually thought very much about what that word actually means. Let's talk about this a moment. 
the word Christ. The word Christ is a Greek word. Uh, if you've used the word Christ before, you have spoken some Greek. Uh, and the name Messiah, oh, so the word Christ means Messiah. And the word Messiah is a Hebrew word. And so if you've ever used the word Messiah, you're using a Hebrew word. Uh, Messiah is a Hebrew word that means anointed. And so in the Old Testament, the people have had long been awaiting the arrival of a Savior who would rescue God's people. He was the anointed one who was supposed to come and sit on David's throne. And so the Savior was predicted. The Savior was anticipated. And he was awaited. So when we call Jesus the Christ, we are saying that he is the one that was predicted. He is the long-awaited Messiah and the Savior of God's people. He is the one that all the prophecies have been pointing to. He is the one that God's people have been yearning to see for centuries. And Peter affirms this in his answer when he says, you are the Christ. So if you ever think, well, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ? It means he's the fulfillment of all God's promises. If you really want to just simplify the answer, he's the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Second, Peter says more. He doesn't just say you're the Christ. He says you are the son of the living God. Now, you know, again, this is this term. The son of God is used a lot in the Gospels. Um, John says that the whole reason he wrote his own gospel is so that you would believe that Jesus is the son of God. So this is a title that gets used repeatedly in the Gospels. Jesus regularly would speak of himself in a way that your average Israelite would not. An Israelite person might talk of God as the father of all of Israel. Uh, They would say that God is the father of Israel, that Israel is the son. They would say those sorts of things. But individually, you you never see the prophets speaking of themselves as God's son. Uh, um, It's just a language that they didn't employ. And Jesus, though, when he's talking to people, he regularly speaks about himself having a relationship to God as father. Jesus is the first. When you're reading, you read through the whole Old Testament and you're just waiting. Why why aren't people using the word father? Jesus uses it all the time. Well, it's significant that no one's saying it until Jesus. Jesus has a different relationship to the father than other created beings, other created people, right? When you ask the question what it means for Jesus to be the son, it doesn't mean that he was born by the father Um, He wasn't created in the way that sons are ordinarily made. Uh, He wasn't created at all. Um, But that's how we think of sons. We think of sons as being created and being born. And in Western civilization, right, the son isn't considered equal to his father. So in the West, we think that honoring our father means saying our father is greater than us. and, And honoring them in that sense. And yet, if you look at the ancient world, it was you did not honor your father because he was greater than you, but because you owed respect to him simply as your father. When Jesus speaks of being the son of God, he speaks of a sonship that he had before anything that was created had ever been created. And here's the difference. In Greek culture and in Hebrew culture, to be a son was not to be less than your father. It was to be equal to your father. Here's why I say that. Everything that your father has is set to become yours. And only someone who is equal to the task of possessing what is his father's 
can inherit what his father has. And so what that means is that in, 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 that, in those cultures, you were seen as equal to your father. You didn't possess what was your father's yet, but you were equal to him because if you weren't equal to him, you were not equal to the task of owning what he has and gaining the inheritance. And so, so in the time of the New Testament context, sonship was not about being lesser than. It was about being an equal in every respect. Being the son, then, is not a statement of Jesus' being created. It is, not a sta- it is not a statement simply acknowledging that he was born in the world uh, like every other male, and therefore he's a son of someone. Um, because if that was the case, then he's a son to the Father the same way that all of us are sons to the Father, right? We're all created. We're all made. Um, sometimes people use phrases like, we're all children of God. When you hear Jesus called the Son of God, just understand that's not what Jesus intends by this. Because he is the Son in a unique way. He is the Son who was begotten of the Father, but not created. You see this in the New Testament. This is not just from the Creed. The rest of the New Testament shows us this. One of the most explicit places is in John 17. One of the most glorious prayers in the Bible. If you haven't, if you haven't read John 17, or maybe you haven't spent time there, I would really encourage you to read John 17 this week. John 17 is a private prayer from the Son to the Father. And in that prayer, you see a relationship that nobody else in the New Testament has. You see something very special and totally unique. Because you see Jesus speaking of himself as eternally sharing in the same glory the Father has. Can you imagine John the Baptist doing that? Could you imagine John the Baptist talking to God about a glory that he had with the Father before the world was made? Um, can you imagine any of the prophets doing that? Can you imagine Moses doing that? Moses was afraid to look in the direction of God. Could you imagine him saying to God, give me the glory I had with you before the world was made? No, of course not. That would be ridiculous. Moses would probably make everybody stone you if you said that he said that. Um, The Apostle John, in his own gospel, he is very insistent that the son, this son, is unlike all other sons. You and I were not present with the Father always. There was a time when we were not. And Jesus, according to John, is is son in a way that you and I are not. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made that have been made. Jesus is the begotten one, but he is not the created one. So for Peter, Peter is here, he gives the answer. For Peter to say that Jesus is the Son of God means that in this moment, the disciples have seen something of the reality of this man whom they have watched healing the deaf, healing the blind, healing the lame, healing the sick. This man that they have seen walk on water, changing water into wine, stilling storms. These men see in Jesus more than just a prophet, like John the Baptist or Jeremiah. They are coming to understand that he is unique and utterly unlike all the prophets who came before. They are not looking at one of the prophets. Unlike those prophets, this man is the son of the father and he has been from all eternity. This is why they render him worship. It's why after he stilled the storm, they worshiped him. 
It's why Thomas responds to the resurrected Jesus by addressing him as my Lord and my God. And we're going to look more at what Jesus says in response. But just know that this is huge. Even as they may misunderstand Jesus' mission, they misunderstand his prediction of his death and resurrection. Uh, they, they think that he's starting an earthly kingdom. They are so mistaken in so many ways. And yet they confess that he is the Christ and they confess that he is the Son of God. They may not understand the mission of Jesus, but they do understand the person of Jesus. The second thing, though, that happens here is Jesus addresses the question of revelation. How is it that they get this answer right? They get everything else so wrong, it seems like. (laughs) And yet here it's like they stumbled on the truth. Look what happens in verse 17. Uh, Jesus responds to Peter's answer, right? This is where we find out. Does did Peter give a good answer or did he give another bad answer? He's given some bad answers before. Is this another one of those? Well, You can imagine Peter gives his answer and sort of holds his breath. And maybe Peter is a little more realistic about himself. Maybe he thinks, here it is. I'm really going to get it. I'm going to find out that I'm still Peter, right? (laughs) Um, He holds his breath, right? You know, what did I just say? Am I far off? Have I got them all wrong? And instead, Jesus gives this amazing answer. Look at verse 17. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. That just means son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So you can tell Jesus loves Peter's answer. (laughs) Because he basically says, the answer you just gave me had to come from God alone. Wow. Like, man, Jesus is sure of one thing. Someone would not look at him and see that he is the Messiah and the Son of God apart from God. Apart from God's work in his heart, he would not see this. And what, here's what this should do. This should, this should prompt us to ask a really significant question. How do we actually come to know God? How, how do we actually come to see the greatness and the loveliness of, of Jesus? One of my favorite places to look as far as this answer goes, first of all, you find it in Scripture. And that's, you know, we're going to go to Scripture. But Jonathan Edwards once preached a sermon And it has the most Puritan title. Like, it's actually pretty short for Puritan titles as far as Puritan titles go. Uh, They could write some really, really long ones. Um, But Edwards wrote a sermon called A Divine and Supernatural Light Immediately Imparted to the Soul. A Divine and Supernatural Light Immediately Imparted to the Soul. Now, again, by Puritan standards, that's that's very succinct. But here's the point that Edwards makes in that sermon. We need the Spirit to immediately help us understand what God is saying. Because without the Spirit, we will hear of God's Word, but we won't savor God's Word, and we won't respond to God's Word. Instead, it's going to be, and maybe you've had experiences like this before. You heard God's Word, you heard it preached, you heard it read, you felt nothing. You heard nothing, you were distracted, all sorts of things happened. But there are times when we hear God's word and it's like it penetrates through all the clouds. It's like a ray of light coming down from the sun through the clouds and it hits us square in the face. And and Edwards points out that having that happen, responding to God's word involves a few things. And 
And so the first thing he said was this. Revelation involves our natural faculties. To, to understand God's word involves our natural abilities, right? Our ability to see, our ability to hear. Um, think of Peter, right? Peter, with his eyes and ears, has observed the life and ministry and miracles of Jesus. And we're like that in a sense, right? Because Peter, Peter knows about Jesus because of his senses. Well, the same thing goes for us. Now, we don't see, physically see, the miracles and the ministry uh, of Jesus with our physical sight, but we do with another one of our senses, our hearing, right? So we find out through our ability to hear or our ability to read, um, we listen to the word, we, we apprehend what God has done using our minds and our best thoughts and skills. And so we're involved in the activity of perceiving God's work somehow, right? So just as an example, if I don't speak loudly enough, you won't hear the sermon, right? You, you need to hear it. Um, we read that actually in our reading this morning, Paul talking about the fact that how will they believe unless someone preaches to them, right? They need to hear. People need to hear. We are participants who need some kind of environmental input so that we have something to respond to in the first place. And that's why Paul says, how can they believe unless they hear? Our natural faculties are involved in understanding God's revelation. Now, second, though, Edward says revelation involves outward means. And what Edwards means is that we don't just have a private experience where we receive new revelations. We need God himself to be the one to speak. It has to come from outside of us. We need God's word to communicate to us. We need to hear the gospel. And the way Edwards illustrates this, he says that, he says that the gospel is like a glass by which this light is conveyed to us. So God's light shines and it's almost as though the gospel is a light or a piece of glass or a mirror that as the light hits it, it reflects off and it comes to us. So the gospel ends up being the lens in which we see the greatness and glory of God. So the glory of God is like that light and the gospel is like the reflection and how it comes to us. Third, he says that only God's spirit gives divine light. Now, you know, if just because you've seen the truth with your eyes, uh, you've heard it with your ears, and you've thought about it with your mind. Well, think about that. There are many people in the New Testament who view the ministry of Jesus. They hear the teaching of Jesus. They hear the preaching of Jesus. They see his miracles. They see all sorts of signs and wonders and things that you would think would convince anybody, right? And yet not everyone who sees the ministry of Jesus ends up believing um, not all of them apprehend and understand and love what they see. How do you explain that? Well, well, Peter, you know, Peter's seen the life of Jesus. He's seen the ministry of Jesus. He's been intimately aware of these things and he's been exposed to the truth. And yet still, Jesus says that Peter would not have been able to confess that he is the Christ unless the Holy Spirit had caused Peter's heart to put these things together and understand what he had seen. So there's a difference between, we, we always think that if people just knew the truth, that that would be enough. And yet actually, not only do people need to know and hear the truth, but they have to do the thing we can't make happen, which is they have to love what they hear. 
And we can't make that happen. Um, I can preach. I can preach passionately. I can preach enthusiastically and, and excitedly to you. Uh, I can show you that it means a lot to me. I can do my very best. I can speak with desperation and great effort. I can give all my energy to preaching. And I'm telling you that it could bounce off of every single one of you if it was not for the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what would happen. You would hear, I mean, because think of the crowds. The crowds heard the greatest preaching that anybody ever heard in the history of all humanity. And many of them walked away and said, I have no interest in that. And so, so it's really, there is something else. There is that extra, you know, they, sometimes they call it the X factor, right? There's the, the thing that you can't put your finger on and that you can't manipulate. And Jesus is telling him who the X factor is. It's a person. It's the Holy Spirit. Um, Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's not talking about a vague spiritual experience here. He's not talking about um, all, Paul is not saying each of you sat privately in your own homes and you looked out the window and you had a a moment. Uh, You had a spiritual moment. He's saying that you have heard God's word preached And God is the one who has taken that and made it mean something to you. What Paul is talking about here is not just seeing the truth. He's talking about understanding what we see. He's talking about savoring what we see. It is a spiritual thing that takes place. And when we say spiritual, we mean because the Holy Spirit has to do it. That is distinct from what we see and experience with our senses. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus tells Peter, you are blessed. He says, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The Apostle John says something like this in his first letter. In chapter 4 of 1 John, he says this. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Right, that would seem, that seems to be Jesus' affirmation too, right? Peter, there's no way you would have understood this or said this if not for a supernatural light immediately imparted to your soul by God's Spirit. Or in John 15, 26, Jesus is teaching the disciples and he's, he's teaching about the role of the Spirit in their lives. And, and there he says that the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So uh, what I want you to get a sense of here is the centrality of the role of the Holy Spirit, not just in your Christian life, but even in our worship services here. If, if you are blessed by God, it's because the Holy Spirit has done it. Um, when, when, the, when the officers and I are, are in the office and we're, we're praying before we come out here, that's what we're praying for. We're praying that the Holy Spirit will be active in this place and we're not praying for me to be clever. Um, we're not praying for, uh, for me to be really polished in my rhetorical skills. You know that I am very often not very polished. Uh, sometimes I say um an awful lot. We don't pray about my ums. And if we did, I might say them less. But that's just not our focus, right? We're focused on the word of God and the Holy Spirit blessing you. So the point here is that the Holy Spirit... The third person of the Trinity plays an incredibly important role, not just in the life and ministry of Jesus, but in us receiving the ministry of Jesus. 
And not just the disciples, right? This is not just for the disciples. This is for us. Our own ability to understand the truth depends on the Spirit. If you have been here long enough, you may have noticed that every time I preach, we have what I call prayer of illumination. We don't have it in the order of service. We don't call it that, but that's what it is. And in the prayer of illumination, the minister prays that God would send his spirit to help us understand the scriptures preached. We ask the the spirit to do that. And you may, may find yourself occasionally reading scripture and thinking, I don't get this. Or... Or you're listening to a sermon, maybe, maybe even this one, <laughs> and you're thinking, I feel lost. Now, that could be the preacher's fault. It probably is. But I guarantee you this, if the truth is being preached, then when you ask God, help me see it, help me, help me love it, help me to understand it, God will help you. You may not understand everything. There may be things you find challenging. There may be words you haven't heard before and the preacher screws up and doesn't define his terms and doesn't tell you what the words mean or he gets caught up in his own lingo. But by the Spirit's work, Christ will not hide himself from you. That's, that's one application here, right? That, that we should be crying out to God to, to illuminate the scripture, crying out to God to help us. But there's one more that I want to mention and it's this. If we receive God's word and if we respond by looking to Jesus, then we should be humbled. We should be humbled. Because the world is filled with people who hear what God says, but they hate it. Um, It's not an exaggeration. People hate what God has to say. And they resist it. And they respond with hard hearts. They try to substitute their own ideas. They don't want to know what God has said. They want to hear their own thoughts and ideas repeated back to them. God, why can't you be like a mirror? And just let me look at it and see me. Right? And so they lie about what was said. Or they twist it. Or they, they pervert what was said into something unrecognizable. All in an effort to resist the word of God. Some are hostile and they, and they don't receive the word of God at all. Now you might be thinking, oh man, he's so judgmental. But listen, that would absolutely be me. That would absolutely be you. That would be every single Christian on the face of the planet apart from God's spirit. All, all, of, all of us depend upon someone other than us making this make sense. So you should be humbled and not proud because because if you understand something that others don't, you know who gets the credit and it is not you. You know from Jesus's very words that if you understand that, if there is some truth you've heard and it's penetrated your heart and it's changed the way you see things, God gets the credit for that. Most faithful ministers that I know have had one time or another had somebody come up to them after a sermon and say, I never saw that before. Now I see it clear as day. Thank you for helping me to treasure Jesus. Um, I'm on a text thread with my friends and sometimes you'll hear I had a pastoral disaster today. And sometimes though, in fact, more than not, we'll hear something like, I really was blessed today because I realized that God used me to help somebody, Right? But here's the thing that, that's, that's such a blessing. It doesn't puff us up. At least hopefully it doesn't puff us up. Because, because we're able to say, look, I didn't see it before either. Like I, 
if I have a, a sermon that goes really well, oftentimes I feel like someone else is preaching it and I'm just getting blessed by the same message you are. And so sometimes you may not even think it's weird when I say it, but, but they'll say it was, I found a blessing in this sermon and I'm able to say, yeah, it was a blessing to me too. I was just the first one that got to hear it. And St. Clair Ferguson says that, right? The preacher sits under his own preaching. And if you have that experience of being blessed by the word of God, be humbled by it. You're not a deeply insightful person. God's spirit is great. Because if, if flesh and blood had revealed these things to you, but, you're, but not your father in heaven, then you would be just a really wise person and people should flock to you and listen to your wisdom. But, but God's word is constantly telling us the exact opposite. This is a passage that focuses our gaze on Jesus, not on us. Like, I'm talking about Peter way too much here. (laughs) Peter's getting too much attention because this is a passage about Jesus. This is a passage about Jesus, about who he is, and how we come to know who he is. Who is Jesus? What an incredible and important question. Um, I could not help but, as I was working on this sermon, I came across a poem by James Allen Francis. And I'm just going to read this poem to you because it, it just dwells on Jesus. So listen to this. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in still another village where he worked until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place he was born. He did none of the things one usually associates with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to the cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race, the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man on earth as much as that one solitary life. We have to return to the original question all of this began with, who is Jesus? Is he just another prophet? And let me challenge you. Do as the disciples were called to do. Look over his life. Look at his actions. Look at how he fulfilled the scriptures. Look at his character. Look at his love. Look at his way of life. Look at his miracles. Look even at his death. And his willingness to suffer on behalf of his people. Does any of this point to just another teacher? Does any of this point to someone just being another in a long line of prophets? It might if you leave out some parts. If you decide, I'll I'll look at this and I'll exclude that, right? If you look at the miracles of Jesus but not his teachings, you might say he's a mere prophet. If you look at his teachings, but not his miracles, you might come away thinking with some sort of moral man who was confused about himself. Look at his resurrection apart from his explanation of who he is or why he was raised up. You might perhaps think he's someone blessed of God like Lazarus. 
but put them all together. And we have before us, I think, an inescapable conclusion. He could not teach what he taught, do the miracles he did, fulfill the scriptures. Like Matthew is constantly pointing out to us, if he was not the one that Peter identifies him as here in this moment, the Christ, the Son of God. Don't segment out Jesus and just look at one aspect of his person. Take in the complete figure that Matthew presents to us. We do not have the right and we don't have the option to only study Jesus the prophet or Jesus the good man or Jesus the moral man or Jesus the well-meaning victim. The whole of scripture and the whole of Jesus' life points us to one absolute conclusion. Peter's words here, Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that we sit back and and we sort of go, oh, how interesting. This is very thought-provoking. And I I mean, I'm happy if you feel it's thought-provoking because maybe that's the start of something for you, right? But that's how the philosophers in Athens treated this when it came to them, right? It comes to them, Paul preaches his heart out, and they go, oh, this is all very interesting. We should talk about this later, right? So don't just be a philosopher, Don't just be a historian. We are meant to respond personally, not with distant study. Might I dare just to take another step deeper here for a moment as we conclude. Always dangerous to say in conclusion because then everyone expects it in the next 30 seconds. Um, All of us want happiness. Um, Blaise Pascal points this out. He says, everyone seeks happiness, even the person who hangs himself. But we often look in different places and usually the wrong places for happiness. If you, if you ever have a chance to read an old book from the medieval period called The Consolation of Philosophy by Boethius, you learn something. Boethius says that we find our greatest happiness in Christ because in Christ we're united to God himself who is happiness itself. We're always seeking happiness And yet we're never willing to do the obvious thing and go to the place where the absolute happiness is found, which is in God. Um, See, God doesn't possess happiness. He doesn't find happiness. He doesn't know where to go to discover happiness. He is happiness. And that is because God's attribute of happiness is also his essence. God doesn't look around for happiness and search for it and find it and gather it. He is happiness. He, he is the fountain of bliss. And so that's why D- Jesus doesn't point people to happiness principles. Jesus doesn't point people to big ideas that will increase their happiness. He's constantly pointing people to himself. The person of Jesus is the perfect source of all joy and fullness. Happiness is not found in an idea. It is found in a person. If you look anywhere else, you won't find it. You'll you'll find something that slips away as you grab at it. It's why Jesus calls us to him. It's why he calls us to him himself. Because in him, not just the idea of him, but in him we find happiness, forgiveness, and fullness. Jesus came for a reason and it was not to be studied or picked apart or analyzed or psychologized or explained He came to deal with the sins of of, of us. 
and he came to be worshipped. And yeah, he gave, came to give us true happiness, the sort that doesn't slip away and the sort that we can't lose based on circumstances. And what this means, listener, is that you are being called to do what Jesus tells us. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Right? That, was, that was one thing that resonated over and over again through our liturgy today, isn't it? You are called to respond by faith. To, to believe in him doesn't just mean to think or to acknowledge. It does not mean mere intellectual assent. It means to trust in him. It means to rest in him. Actually, just look at the front of your bulletin. This fantastic quote from Giles Furman. Faith in Christ is the receiving of Christ as he is offered in the gospel. And so resting upon him alone for life and salvation. What this means is that you trust him to cover your sins. It means to believe that his righteousness covers over your unrighteousness, but that means acknowledging your unrighteousness. I haven't been righteous. I am not who I ought to be. It means that all these truths, far from being abstract ideas, this is the very truth of God. And we are not called merely to study that truth, but we're called to do something about it. And we're called to answer in our own words and for ourselves the question of Jesus, who do you say that I am? Let's pray. Oh God, we, we ask that you would do for us what we know is impossible on our own. That you would breathe upon our hearts and grant us spirit-given faith so that we would believe on the Lord Jesus something only possible by your work in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.